Um, tonight as we start, we uh, have finished up chapter 9, and uh, chapter 9 ends in one of the most heartbreaking of situations. And uh, if you remember, whether it is the 20, the 200 million army of men, or the 200 million uh, demonic army, whichever that is, a ton of the world's population has been killed. Um, and uh, as you know, I, I hold to a premillennial position uh, that the rapture of the church happens, the seven year period then uh, takes place, and we're in the, at the later part of that. Uh, you say, well, Jake, what is the value for this? What does it matter? Well, one, if you're a Christian, someone who has been saved during the tribulation period, this is going to be quite awful. Right? You've seen people die of starvation, of plagues, uh, of persecution. And uh, right here at the end of chapter six, uh, 9, something happens. Uh, we see this break, kind of this, this stopping point for a season. And I want to read the end of Revelation chapter 9 to you, verses 20 and 21. The end of the sixth trumpet. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So that's the end of chapter nine, the sixth trumpet. We do not see the seventh trumpet until Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, it says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 are kind of like this reminder to God's people that God's not forgotten about you. That God is working. Things are going on behind the scenes that they don't see. And I quoted this from John MacArthur because I really wanted you to be able to read it and think about it on your own. But it states, MacArthur states, now to have an interlude before the final trumpet shouldn't surprise us because there is a certain kind of similarity to all of the septenary judgments. All these judgments of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and they're all laid out the same way. They are laid out in divisions of four followed by three. There were four seals, then they were followed by three. And there was a definite distinction between them. There were four trumpets somewhat similar, and then there were three dissimilar. And there will be that same kind of division in the bowls as we shall see later. The last three are always separated from the first four. And then in each case, between the sixth and the seventh, there's an interlude. We've already seen that. Between the sixth and seventh seals, there was an interlude of chapter seven. Between the sixth and seventh bowls, there will be an interlude of Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. 
And here between the sixth and seventh trumpets, there is an interlude that begins in chapter 10 and runs all the way down through chapter 11, verse 14. In each case, the interlude that comes before the final judgment, whether the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, or the seventh bowl, and this is very important if you're underlining, is intended to encourage and comfort God's people in the midst of the fury of God's judgment. It is a gasp for breath in which God can comfort his people who have gone through the first six of each of these are feeling the heat and fury of judgment. These interludes are to remind God's people that God is still sovereign. His people are still remembered and will be ultimately victorious. Now, as we come to chapter 10, we find ourselves in the longest of the interludes, the interlude between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. When number seven blows, in it are contained the seven bold judgments. I believe they come very rapidly in rapid fire succession. Chapter 15, verse 1, seven angels who have the seven plagues, and these are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. And so even in the midst of all this judgment, all this punishment, God wants to remind his people that he loves them. And I think that is very true even when we think about parenting our own children, right? The Bible says to spare the rod is to hate the child. Not spoil, hate, all right? But yet we do know that discipline, if it is not intertwined with love and encouragement, is abuse, right? You cannot just always correct your children. You have to remind them that you love them and you care for them. And God is the same way. As all of this heartache goes on, it would be easy to get discouraged. I get discouraged as a believer, and we live in one of the easiest times to be a Christian in human history. But I can find myself whining and pouting and complaining about the government and complaining about all these other things. But yet in the midst of all of this, God just slows down and says, all right, I want you to be reminded. I want you to remember who you are and who I am. So in Revelation chapter 10, we're going to read these seven verses. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot excuse me, on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants 
the prophets. Now, we're not going to probably get through all of this, so we're not going to look at the little book tonight, but we'll look at it next week. Um, but what I want to talk to you tonight about is the angel that we see. In my opinion, the, the greatest two preachers in the last 50 years, one is in heaven, one is not. The first is Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers, pa pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. As far as I'm concerned, there is no greater preacher than Adrian Rogers. The second, I believe, is still living, and I think he's great. I don't agree with him on everything, is John MacArthur. Those two Bible teachers who I think are absolutely remarkable, all right, have totally and completely differences of opinion on how this chapter should be interpreted. Totally different. Both went to Baptist seminaries. Both have ch pastored churches that would be considered Baptist, even though MacArthur's is not. He is always at Baptist conferences. And so we need to be reminded that there are things you can disagree on and still love the Lord. Right? There are things about the book of Revelation that we can disagree on and still get along. As long as I am not teaching, or if someone is not teaching you, to disregard something the Word of God says, you're okay. All right, so for instance, when I had to have Lucas edit my sermon from Sunday night, uh, from time to time I make a statement that I think probably shouldn't have been in there, and so Lucas will go in and take it out for me. And if you were here Sunday night, you probably know what I'm talking about. I was talking about how every time I go to a conference, I hear some pastor talking about tithing, how it's unbiblical, how you... It's not any applicable anymore. And, and, but then God literally accuses them of don't rob me, right? And I might have used the S word, not a cuss word, to describe what I thought about that. That's where I think the difference is. God literally tells them, this is what it says. This is what you're supposed to do. Abraham, Jacob, the law, the New Testament teaches that we should be even more generous. And so I think it's dangerous to tell people, well, that's what it says. But that's not what God really means. All right, that's where I think the difference is, right? When someone says, well, I know that Jesus said that in the beginning they were male and female, right? Jesus even references the book of Genesis. But I don't think that's really true. That's where you cross the line, right? That's where you go from being able to disagree and still be on the same team to be disagree and not be on the same team, okay? So however you view this chapter, on either spectrum of this, I think it's okay. But I think it's important because the writer is told by God to take a break, and this is what I want to show you. All right? So the mighty angel, there are two interpretations. One, and the first one we're going to look at, is just a mighty angel of the Lord. The second view is that actually this is... Jesus Christ himself. And so we're just going to look at the first one and discussions, questions, we're going to jump right in. Look there in verse 1. I still saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. I do not believe this is one of the seven angels that we see who are blowing the trumpets. 
In Revelation chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them there were given seven trumpets. So we are seeing that there are different angels with different tasks, uh, with a different hierarchy, okay? And the word here for another can mean one of two things. It can mean another of the exact same kind. So there are multiple angels of this authority, or it can mean one of a kind. So whether you believe it's Jesus because he's one of a kind, or it's an angel because it's one of a certain kind, it doesn't clear it up, all right? So what do some of these angels in the Bible look like that could fit into this category? Well, Gabriel is an angel name that we see. We also know that there are three other times in the Bible that Gabriel is sent to earth with a message for someone. In Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 15, it says, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. For he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And so whether this angel is an angel like Gabriel or an angel like Michael, it's very possible. If you remember in the book of Luke, um, there was a man who was in the temple, right? Offering the incense and praying for the people. And Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. So this is the second time. Who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So this mighty angel in chapter 10 who brings this good news could very well be Gabriel or another angel like him. 
There's a third instance where Gabriel brings a message of good news to the world. In Luke chapter 1, he visits Mary, the mother of our Lord, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. So three times in the scriptures we see Gabriel is sent with a message. He is sent with a message of encouragement. He is sent with a message of instruction in regards to Daniel. And so very well, this angel who is sent could be Gabriel or another angel. Well, are there other examples of angels of this order? It looks like that in Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 4. Now on the 25th, fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like the torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, or gives the look of fire, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude, so very similar to the description of the angel that we see in, in Revelation chapter 10. And if anyone has their uh, a phone, I think it's Ezekiel 38, when it's talking about the king of Tyre, or it's describing what Satan was like before he was thrown out of heaven. If somebody wants to find that, uh, they can have the privilege of reading that here in just a minute, because as you know, your notes were already almost five pages, so I thought I would leave that one out. Uh, because it is kind of lengthy. But also in Daniel chapter 12, he said, Jake, why is this important? Because it is a messenger of encouragement. It is a messenger to remind us that when things seem to be falling apart, when we think that God has forgotten us, that he hasn't. And while we are not going through the proportions that you will see in Revelation chapter 10, we still have struggles. In Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on the river bank and the other on that river bank. And the one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up in his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever. That's very important because we're going to see this very angel, whether it is an angel or Jesus, depending on where you fall, swears by God in heaven who lives forever for that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be 
finished. So we're seeing this direct correlation to this in Jude chapter 1, the last one, and then we'll stop for a minute. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So we see this spiritual battle. We see a spiritual warfare over the body of Moses. Some Bible commentators believe it is because uh, God had them move the body because the nation of Israel worshipped Moses so much that they probably would have made his shrine an idol. Uh, and so they would have went to worship at the grave of Moses. They had kind of proven that, if you remember, throughout the Exodus. Others believe it is because God protected the body uh, for the book of Revelation. When the two witnesses come back, we don't know. I don't think there's any good explanation. But whatever we see here is that Michael, in contending with the devil, recognized the authority and power that the devil has. Now, did anybody find the passage from, I think it's Ezekiel 38. You just Google, you probably find it faster. I think it's Ezekiel, but I can't remember. That's what I'm saying. It talks about the king of Tyre falling and all that he was, what he was like before he fell. You might just Google the fall of Satan or what he was like before. I was going to have it and I was reading about it and I got sidetracked. And then it was going to be too much, like I said. So what we see, though, is this powerful angelic being, whether it is an angel or the Lord, is not out of contrast with what Scripture says, right? We see that his head was like the sun, his rainbow was on his head, his feet were like pillars of fire. We see down later on that he raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. And so we see these correlations back and forth to this powerful angelic order or powerful angelic being that has a purpose in serving the Lord. Yeah, if you found it, I think it's Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. It says, Limitation for the King of Tyre is the uh, title. So moreover, the word of the Lord came to be saying, Son of man, take up. A limitation to the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, You were the seal of protection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your temples and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. This that sound right? Yeah, that's exactly it. it you, just, were, you were the anointed cherubim who covers. I establish you. You were the on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in, in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane, profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. O covering cherubim, from the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Your corrupted, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may, they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitudes of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. I, it devoured you, and I turned you to the ashes upon the earth, in the sight of all who saw you. 
All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So there is no doubt this is directed to an earthly king, but also it looks like it is directed not only to the earthly king, but to Satan, who is the power behind this kingdom. 28 verses 1 through 10 is the fall, and then verses 11 through 19 of Ezekiel is what he was like before he fell. And so when we see this, we see these things like you were made in perfection, uh, that you were covered in precious stones, uh, that you uh, were on the holy mountain of God. Uh, and so we see this, right? This, this splendor of what Satan was like before he fell. And so we have to believe that, that there was at least an order, maybe a hymn, Michael, Gabriel, we don't know, of this situation. And so we see the splendor and the beauty and the power and the authority. And so when we see this in chapter 10, we're just trying to set the pattern that this is not out of the ordinary. This is consistent with how God has worked in the past. Uh, we know that the kingdom of Tyre was a kingdom of great wealth, it was a, uh, a kingdom of great privilege, but yet we also see some phrases in here that could not just be for an earthly king, right? Uh, you are on the holy mountain of God, right? Well, that, that couldn't be a man in verse 14. Uh, verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. That couldn't be a man, right? Because we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, right? There is none good, no, not one. So I think what we see here is a picture of what it was like before Satan fell. And so it's just a reminder to us and just this reminder that, that God is at work, that God has it under control, but this little break is a reminder that, that God is still sovereign, he is still working, and this is consistent. The key to studying God's word is not just finding the verses that you agree with, but it is finding the verses that you disagree with and then applying them and letting them deal with you as, as well. And so what we've seen is, right, over and over again, Gabriel was a messenger, We've seen the beauty, the power that these angels can have. And then when we go to chapter 10 and we see this description, it is very much in line with what the rest of God's word teaches. All right. And so that is the overwhelming majority of Bible scholars believe that this angel is sent as a reminder to those going through the tribulation period that they're not alone. All right. That God has not forgotten about them. Questions? I know that's a lot of verses, but I just, I think you came from Bible study. That's what we ought to do. Amen? So. Now, the second and less common interpretation of this chapter is that this is Jesus himself. And um, you say, well, Jesus is not an angel. You are right. And so if you begin to correlate that Jesus was created, you're wrong. But yet, if you read throughout the Old Testament, there are times when the angel is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And it is clear that it is talking about Jesus. Not that he was created, but that he was a messenger. All right, that word for angel means messenger, okay? 
And I'm going to give you a bunch of examples, all right? Because I don't want you to leave here thinking Jake thinks that Jesus has created me. Because that makes you a heretic, all right? That means you're in a cult, all right? He has always been the Son of God. He was not created, all right? Isaiah 63, verse 9. It's right there in your notes. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Now, these verses are not in your notes, but you are welcome to write them down. Because like I said, your notes were extremely long, right? Um, so there are a couple ways to view these appearances in the Old Testament, right? That it is the... The Son of God, pre-incarnate, right? Pre-taking on flesh as a baby, appearances in the Old Testament. Uh, and so we're going to just look at some of these that could be those pictures. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 10. Genesis 16, verse 10. Then the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that you cannot be counted for the multitude, right? That he would multiply. If you look in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, talking about Hagar and all this, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. So here's the angel referencing the Lord. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God is not an angel, not mistake that, right? But it's messenger, okay? If you remember Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18, 18 verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. If you remember on Mount Moriah, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. He said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from who? From me. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. We can see it in the story of Jacob, if you remember, in Genesis 31, verse 11. Lots of examples. You can study them on your own. But sometimes people will say, well, this can't be him because of this. I'm just trying to give you some examples of why some scholars believe that it is. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. In Genesis 32, verse 30, that familiar passage of Scripture when Jacob wrestled with an angel. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Genesis 48, verse 16, Jacob at the end of his life. The angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Some other examples, we're not going to read them for the sheer sake of time, 
Exodus chapter 3, in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, right? Uh, Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being martyred, and after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 23, that God promised to send an angel in front of them, right? Uh, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, in Joshua, we see the same thing. In Joshua chapter 5, with Gideon, the same thing in Judges 6, with Samson's parents in Judges 13. And so there are a lot of examples of messengers throughout the Old Testament, sometimes calling them the angel of the Lord, then sometimes referring to them as the Lord had spoke to them. So when you say, well, it can't be because of that, I don't think that's a fitting uh, discussion. But so, for instance, like I said, my favorite two pastors, uh, Adrian Rogers says that this is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus. John MacArthur, who I have the equal amount of respect, says there's absolutely no way that it could be Jesus, right? So we can disagree, still be on the same team, but we need to know why and why it matters, all right? So, questions before we just jump right in to the descriptions of all that's going on in this chapter. So we looked at what it was if it was the angel. Now, what, why could it be Jesus? Well, rainbow signifies a promise, right? The rainbow is seen in which chapter of the book of the Bible? And the meaning is what? I've talked enough. Somebody else can speak. <laughs> the, the, the earth will not be destroyed by water. Right. It's a promise, right? It's a covenant. It's something God says that he will not do. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm not going to read it for the, the whole chapter because we're already almost out of time. It talks about uh, in verse 4 and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Right? There are people who were trying to convince them that they missed uh, the Lord's return. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that had then existed perished. So he's talking about the flood, right? The promise of God that he wasn't going to flood the entire earth again, right? And you can read that on the back page there because uh, then it goes into verse eight. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So he says, God is a promise keeper, right? He's a promise keeper. And so when you look at the rainbow signifying this promise keeping, and it's the fact that it's here in verse uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 1, and the rainbow was on his head. Whether it is the angel or it is Jesus himself, God is a promise-keeping God. And that's something to really focus in. The promises of God are just that, promises, all right? And uh, you should always be reminded of that in difficult. Questions? 
Alright, so the second thing we see from this passage of Scripture is his face. His face was like the sun. Now we've already seen that angels can have that radiance. But in Matthew chapter 17, when we see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen to how it describes this situation starting in verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone, oh come on, three words, like the sun. Thank you very much. Woo. And his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a brow cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud. If you remember, what was it? He had a rainbow on his head. He had face like he had the sun. And the very first thing that it mentioned was he was clothed with a cloud. Clouds can symbolize the divine presence or the divine power of God. It goes on and says, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Hear him. Where else in the Bible do we see a cloud of divine proportion? There you go. It's the very next verse. I, I didn't know if you were going to catch it or not. Uh, uh, so starting in verse 20 of Exodus chapter 13, I think next week I'll let you guys read these. I've been short of breath here lately. So so they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them. I don't miss that. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. You say, Jake, why does this matter? We're trying to establish the pattern throughout all of God's word, right? That this is how God works. This is how God operates. So that what we believe is not based on one chapter, on one verse, but on the consistent nature of who? Who God is, right? And so we see here, very similar. Feet like burning brass, glowed like a fire, it says here, in that same verse, right? And his feet like pillars of fire. In Revelation chapter 1, when describing the feet of Jesus, it says, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, right? And his voice as the sound of many waters. And so if you flip down here in Revelation chapter 10 and talks about the voice, and the voice is loud, it's thunderous, what does the sound of the ocean make of many waters? It's like almost a thunderous roar, right? It's crashing up against the waves. And so I think it's very possible here that there is support that this is a picture of who Jesus is, that this could be him. Do I more lean toward that it is an angel? Probably. But I think both of them looking at the consistency of who God is, is an acceptable view. Any questions on that? Because like I said, we continue on. It's just 
more scripture, more scripture. So, all right, the foot on land and the foot on water. This is where it kind of gets awkward because we know that if this is literally Jesus standing one foot on the water and one foot on the land, it messes up the timeline, right? Because he's coming back again. Uh, he's a little early in the where we're at in the chronological of things, right? He's not coming back like in chapter 19. So you can either believe that this is a picture of him with control over the whole earth or that this angel physically comes as a sign. A foot on land and water symbolizes possession, ownership of everything. Think about this in Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Jonathan, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all his people, to the land which I am giving to them. Don't miss this. The children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. So once again, the Lord told Joshua, where you go is what's yours. I told it to Moses, but it didn't happen. All right? So here in Revelation 10, we see this angel, whoever it is, with one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, because the earth is made up of land and Hey, there it is. Man, we're all over it. Colossians chapter 1. Why some Bible scholars view it. I know, you're looking at me like, I'm, like I ran out in front of you in traffic tonight, so I'm trying to light it up just a little bit. Colossians chapter 1 tells us why and who has ownership of everything in regards to the earth. For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created through him and for him. So it, it, it's either Jesus giving this angel the authority to say it's all mine, or it's Jesus showing us that through all of the plagues, through all of the disaster, through all of the war, through all of the heartache, that the prince of this world is not in charge. All right, he is. And if you're a believer going through this, you need to hear that. When a third of the world's population was killed, whether uh, another uh, two one-fifth, probably half the world's population has died. Multitudes of believers are gone. You need to be reminded right before the seventh judgment, the seventh trumpet, that God is not slack. God has not lost control because it's easy to think that sometimes. It's easy to think, well, the, the, the lost are winning or, or why are the wicked seeming to prevail? If you remember from Malachi, that's what they said, right? Well, why should we serve God? It looks like the, the wicked are the ones that are prospering anyway. God says, no, 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 no. It's not how this works. So that's what we see here from this passage of Scripture. So whichever view you hold, don't miss the overall point 
of why it's given. So are you saying that this put on the land and put on the is a figurative literal translation or a translation of this? Well, I think it is, I think you have to be very careful here. For instance, as you read with all of it, right, what's the spiritual meaning? And so could it be Christ physically standing on the earth? No. If you hold to a timeline of he's came for his church, he's coming back again, right, at the end of the seven-year period. So it very well could be because of that simple fact that it is an angel. So, yeah, it could be representative of what he is in charge of, that just like it was. Translation a little bit. Huh? That shifts your literal, or translating this word. Well, you it's always not. translate it literally until there is a meaning that has to be found. And in this one, there has to be a meaning found, whether it is a literal standing or is trying to represent it. We always try to study God's word in its simplest form. But there are some times that we know when we read through Ezekiel and Daniel that what he is saying has to be interpreted, has to be understood in what it represents, the parables. And that is how you have to read through Revelation it can't all be literal, but the I feel the best way to study scripture is in its simplicity when you can And then when there is an issue like we just said, we don't skip over it and say well There's no problem with the theory that this is Jesus That this is why it could be a concern. So and then how do we answer that with scripture? Like I said, don't base your theology on what agrees with you but find out the verses that disagree with you and find out how they fit, how they explain, and build a theology on all of it. That's my biggest problem with people I agree with or disagree with who teach the Bible. It's they only want to teach the verses that they agree with. When if you teach verse by verse, word by word, you have to teach what? All of it. And sometimes you have to say, I don't know. I'm just not sure. You know, sometimes I have to say, well, I don't like it. I know why, you know. So so that's why I think you have to work through the book of Revelation like this, slowly, methodically. All right, we're almost done, I promise. We're, we're running out of time. We see here the lion, the lion. This is another one of those that in verse two, where it says, in verse three, when the lion roars, that once again you lean back to what is a Christ because what we know from the word of God is that he is represented as the lion sometimes and as the lamb right in Joel chapter 3 talking about the judgment of God it says the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem the heavens and the earth will shake but the Lord will shelter for his people and a strength of the children of Israel, right? So this idea of judgment, this idea of authority is given to the Lord. But yet in Revelation 12, verse 11, we know, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. So we see the mercy of God and the judgment of God. And what you have in our society is you have people who become very legalistic who only want to think about the judgment of God and people who become very liberal 
who only want to think about the mercy of God. But yet you have to understand that God is both Savior, but he is also the one who will condemn for those who reject. Right? He is the one who will forgive, but he is the one who will hold those guilty for their transgressions. You can't have one without the other. It is both, right? And that's why the Bible is full of, of things that just don't make sense. Why God would love any of us, right? I don't understand it. I, I know my own heart, my own life. I have no idea why he died for the ungodly, but it's because he's merciful, right? And he, and he wants a people to worship him. But on the flip side of that, I know exactly how he has to punish sin. Because without the grace of God and the blood of Jesus covering me, right, I would be up a creek without a paddle. And so we must always remember when we teach the word of God that we do have to teach the holiness of God, right, the perfection of God, the fact that he sits and reigns in heaven. But yet on the flip side of that, we see that Jesus is the one who went to the well knowing that the woman with five husbands and a live-in was there. Right, knowing that the that the woman with the flow of, of blood was going to touch the hem of his garment, right? He, he was going to go into the home of Levi, the tax collector, and there were going to be other tax collectors and sinners there. Have a quick story. As many of us know, we as a church monthly support a, a pastor in a church in Mount Vernon. And if you know anything about Vernon, Mount Vernon, Logan Street was a big Baptist church that moved north of town out of the more challenging part of Mount Vernon. Sugar Camp, under the leadership of their pastor, felt that they should sell their building out here in the middle of nowhere, south of Belvoir, of 50 people and move into the Logan Street building that at one point had 800 people, right? Has Sunday school rooms for 1,000. A gymnasium that is twice almost complex of ours. And that's what God wanted because they wanted to reach the people of that side of town. And I'm just going to say it, that most white churches have given up on. Now, I remember when he said that, I thought, that is, that's crazy. It was unanimous. The church voted unanimous to move. Two people actually walked out, but then came back and said, no, the Lord's dealt with us. We can move. <laughs> Sold the building to the Mennonites, I believe who it was. They go to Mount Vernon. This guy is a successful, his name is Jesse Webster. He is a successful businessman. Feels like they're supposed to sell her. Not even finished new home yet. Move into the basement of his wife's mom and dad, which is uh, Tyler Reeves' brother, okay? And they have almost as many kids as I do. Alright? There was a rundown little house on the corner of Logan Street's property that they were going to fix up and live in. Well, what they had a heart for was to take, which Richard Moore uh, at Blooming Grove, he was there at, at their church, our association has supported them, to take six or seven men, teach them how to be carpenters, then send them out to get jobs. And the whole time, it is a trade school where they can witness to them, they can work with them. Anyway, to the end of this project, right, they built Jesse a house for him and his family to live in because the church needed a $100,000 roof. 
and someone said, we'll give you the $100,000 for the roof if you'll go ahead and put that extra money into building you a house that, down there in that side of town that you can live in, all right? And so someone paid $100,000 to fix the Lincoln roof. But anyway, so anyway, all that. And so they just had like the graduation ceremony with all these guys and they invited their family and friends. And he goes, I know what Jesus must have felt like sitting with the tax collectors and the sinners because he said there was an aroma of marijuana at that <laughs> gathering. Because the people they had invited are not Christians, they're not believers, but yet they came to watch their family member get their toolbox and their tools for graduating this program. And he said, some of them have, have all of their teeth or gold. All, you know, He said, it is a mixture, but yet God is at work in that community. Right? I can tell you what would happen if my wife said, we're going to sell our house and move into 10th Street and, or wherever it is. You know, It would have been a challenging time, right? But I said all of that because why? We see a God who loves sinners, but yet sin cannot be in his presence. And so it's just this beautiful picture of the character of who God is. Questions, thoughts? Don't ask me about the project because I can't tell you all the details, but you can talk to them at Sugar Camp. Don't ask you about the project in, in my mind. Yeah, because I don't know all the details. But How's the church doing? Uh, I think they're up around 80 or 90, maybe. I think that's right. <clears throat> and it could be more or less. I'm, I'm not sure. Our church in Zion did something similar to that. We had a big church, and uh, the neighborhood changed, and uh, they sold it to the blacks and uh, moved out took over another church. Yeah. Well, Sugar Camp is, 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 would look very much the same demographics as Tim Mile. And uh, I heard one of the gentlemen who wasn't really on the favor of it said, I was totally against it till the first time we did a, a Halloween outreach. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of people lined up to get a gospel presentation and to get some candy. We'd have never reached that group of people eight miles south of Bell Rive, mm -hmm. surrounded by the Mennonites. Nothing against the Mennonites, all right. But that is just a picture of the love and, and desire they have on their heart. So, wonderful. All right, we're almost done. So a couple things about the message that he's given. Uh, we see that it was secret, right? We see that he is told not to write this down. Uh, we see this very same thing in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And um, uh, we see here that Paul, right, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. For how he was caught into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So that's where we'll stop and you can read this. So once again, Paul says there are some things I'm not allowed to say. I'm not allowed to tell you about what is going on. And so John sees the same thing, right? You can't, you can't write this part. 
And you can't let anybody know. So it's this pattern, right? That we're seeing it line up in Scripture. But then we see the guarantee, right? Who guarantees this is unfolding? And so we see in this chapter that he swears by God. Now, this is where it gets kind of awkward because people say, well, we're not supposed to swear. We're not supposed to swear by ourselves, right? Because we're sinners. We can't control what happens tomorrow, right? But whether this is Jesus swearing on himself or the angel who is swearing on God, because this is the timetable that God has given them, we see this very same pattern in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. We saw the very same pattern uh, earlier in Daniel. And, uh, and so literally in verse 16, right, of Hebrews 6, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is them an end to all dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, right? So God made an oath upon himself and God cannot lie. Last thing and then we'll be done. We see time. We see the time here. Look what it says uh, in verse seven. But in the days of the sounding of the same angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servant, he says there are some things in scripture that you and I don't understand there are some things we can't under uh, explain and, and God's timeline is in that category all right but what he's saying is that when we see it this is happening according to God's time and it's getting ready to all be over and all of the promises that God has made to his servants will be fulfilled and so just look at Luke and then I'll be done Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth, the distress of nations with perplexity, and the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming to the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. And so what we see is that even though we might disagree on the details or exactly when it's going to happen, that we need to be encouraged by the book of Revelation that God is in control that he is working it all out and that these things are not a surprise to him and that we can trust him. One thing, what does that mean for us as a church? It means we are to be not worrying and focused on working. Working for the Lord. Whether that is witnessing, uh, whether that is serving, our lives are not to be focused on the things of this world but we are to be focused on the world to come and doing all we can for the Lord until he comes.